Thank you for hosting us here tonight and for giving us an opportunity to uh, share the word with you. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, we have a work in the Philippines. Uh, I left the United States just to give you a brief history of where we came from. Left the U.S. in September of 1980. I'm a graduate of Rhema, 1979-1980, back when you could just go one year and then graduate. You could do that. You can't do that now, but back then you could. You had a, uh, the second year was optional. You could stay a second year if you wanted to because that was just getting started. But really, the initial Rhema was a nine-month training center. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And so I went for nine months in... Uh, September of 1979 to May of 1980. And then I graduated and left for the Philippines in September of 1980 with $20 in my pocket. I, all the savings that I had was spent to you know, clear up my debts and pay my bills and put my car in storage. And I told my mother, you may never see me again. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what God has in store when I go over there. I left the $20 a one-way plane ticket, because that's all the money I had. Back then, you could buy one-way plane tickets. You can't do that now either, but you could back then. So I landed with uh, no money in my pocket except $20, no money in the bank. The promise of support from one couple, which was my mother and stepdad, and one small church in Toledo, Ohio, totaling about $275 promised. Not in, in hand, but promised. So when I landed, I didn't know if anybody would be there to meet me. The man that uh, came to Rama as a guest speaker was a Filipino, and this is how it all started. It's a longer story than we have time to talk about tonight, but uh, the Lord told me to go work with him upon graduation. So I wrote him letters three times between October of 79 and May of 80. How many remember letters <laughs> with, a, with a stamp, with a stamp on it, you know? Again, you talk to young people to say, what's a letter? Yeah. Well, that's all you had back then. You, you, know, you couldn't even pick up the phone and call. That was an all-day affair, and it cost hundreds of dollars, etc. So I wrote the man three times and said, you know, when you spoke at Rhema, God spoke to me about coming to, to work with you upon graduation this coming May, etc. Well, I never got an answer. So when I left the U.S., I did not know if anybody would be there to meet me on the other side. So we flew. I flew by myself, alone. No one was... No one saw me off at the airport in Los Angeles. I flew from Tulsa to L.A., L.A. to Manila, Manila to Cebu, and all by myself, and nobody was there to meet me until I got to Cebu, which is the last stop before I was out of gas, out of gas, out of money. And fortunately, there was someone from his ministry that had been sent up from another island to Cebu, which is the, an island. It's like New York, New York, Cebu City, on the island of Cebu. And he had you know, a little sign that said, Mike Keys. I was never so happy to see a human being in my life. I ran and hugged this guy. I hope he didn't think I had issues, but I didn't care. I didn't care. Thank God faith works. Hallelujah. Anyway, that's how things started. And from then until now, we've had a crusade ministry, which is always the platform and the basis for our work. Crusades, winning souls. We, go to the, we always go to the mountainous places where no one else has gone. You know, Pastor Paul's been there many times. He can attest to this. He's been with us on many occasions. Uh, we go, you know, our crowds are not huge T.L. Osborne, you know, Reinhard Bonnke kind of stuff. Ours are 200, 300 people or less because we go to places where no one else has ever gone. And as a result, in the last 42 years, we have been uh, honored by God to lead more than 750,000 people to Jesus in those 42 years. So we're very grateful. And give all the glory to God. We're nobody without him, of course. 
but that's what he was able to produce. My point is this. If you sell out to God and you tell him you'll do anything he asks you to do, go anywhere he tells you to go, good things happen. I met my wife there. She's the best thing that ever happened to me outside of Jesus. I never would have met her if I didn't have that one-way ticket and be willing to fly all the way around the world to do something for the Lord. She wasn't looking for a mate, and neither was I. But God has a way of putting people together. He, would you agree he knows us better than we know ourselves? He knows what works best in our lives. Well, that's an example of that right there, my dear sweet Ethel. So I have a message tonight that I want to share with you because of the times in which we live and where we need to be spiritually with the times that we are now living in. You know, we talked on the drive over here from the hotel. When we talked about end times in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> we didn't know what we were talking about. You know, there was no internet. There wasn't, there wasn't even fax machines back in those days. I remember when the fax machine was a new gadget that you played with, you know. How many remember it used to take a whole, a whole day to send one piece of paper, and when you got it, it was that thermal paper that, that you know, faded after 20 minutes, you know. It's like... Anyway, that, you know, we've come a long way, but the day in which we live. Look with me, if you would. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 and verse 25. These verses, I have used these and feasted on these for the last five to ten years. Uh, this is part of a, an exchange between Jesus and his disciples they asked him questions. They said, what will be the signs of your return? What are we supposed to see? How are we supposed to know that your return is close at hand? That's the questions they asked. The questions are answered in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Those two chapters record the answers that Jesus gave to those questions. Some of the answers are found in Matthew 24. Some of them are found in Luke 21. You put the two together and you'll, you'll get the complete exchange between Jesus and his apostles and disciples. For us tonight, we're going to look just at this small passage from 21 Luke, the 25th verse. Among many things that he said, and I'm reading from the New King James unless otherwise indicated, he said, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, Verse 26, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 28, now when these things begin to happen, how many would agree they have begun to happen? Oh yeah, we're well into this, well into this. When these things begin to happen, Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. See, this is not a time to be afraid. This is actually a time to be excited. If you know some things that we're going to talk about here tonight. If you know some things. You know, it's not a guarantee. I've met a lot of people. I've been in a lot of churches full of great people who love Jesus, and they are not prepared for what's coming down the road. They may love the Lord with all their heart, and we're happy that they do, and they're born again and on their way to heaven. And in our circles... Spirit-filled people, too. But these verses here, they are not looking up with excited anticipation. They're fearful. They, have, they are just what Jesus described here. They're failing from fear. It says, the earth will be filled with distress in nations. Distress. Nations in distress. That means 
They, they are stressed. They are perplexed. It says, with perplexity. If I say to you that I'm perplexed, I'm telling you that I've got problems and I can't solve these. I have issues and I don't know which way to turn. I'm perplexed. I have problems and no answers, no solutions. I don't know which way to turn. I'm perplexed. That's what that word means. They're in distress with perplexity. And then it says the sea and the waves are roaring. Sea and waves prophetically never refer to actual bodies of water. They always refer to large groups of people. Okay, prophetic groups, culture groups, language groups, nationalities of people. That's what we're talking about. And when it says the sea and the waves are roaring, that means massive, large numbers of people are crying out for help. But because the nations don't know what to do, they're all in perplexity. Nobody can help each other. This is the environment in which we live, which then leads them to 26, which says men's hearts are failing them from fear. And the expectation of things, not just things, but the expectation of things, the fear of the future, okay? Always remember, you know, fear always deals with the unknown. Fear always deals with something you think might happen, but probably won't. But the devil will sit on your shoulder and convince you that it probably will. And so you worry about it. Your worry will never solve the problems you worry about. In fact, worry is a sin. The Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And worry is the direct opposite of faith, trusting in God. But that's the environment in which we live. Everywhere I turn, everywhere I go, and COVID's an example of this. This is one of many examples where people are bound by the cloud of fear, paralyzed by fear. Okay? Listen, we don't minimize what has happened because of the virus. And for the people that have died, we are, we are very sorry for that. That's tragic. But do you understand that's all that, that came from the devil? The whole thing is demonic? China didn't introduce the virus. Satan did. He just used the Chinese, the vehicle, to bring it into the earth. This is a pandemic designed to steal, kill, and destroy and shut down the churches and prevent us from doing what the Great Commission tells us to do, which is to travel and go into all the world and reach people. We haven't been back to the Philippines in two years because of this. That's just one example of many. Pastors having to shut their doors because, you know, the governments tell us to. All of this stuff is designed to shut the church down and keep people from hearing the gospel and kill as many people as they can along the way. Of course, that's his number one goal always anyway. So that's the world in which we live. In order to survive, not just survive, but thrive, let's look at some things, okay? Let's go to... Joshua. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Joshua. I love the book of Joshua. It's a great book. I recommend that you read it periodically. Jo uh, Joshua and the 14th chapter. This is an exchange between Joshua and Caleb. And I like Caleb. He's one of my Old Testament heroes. I love this man. I love his attitude. God called him a man with another spirit. He liked this man. He liked the way he thought. He liked the way this man talked. His demeanor. His attitude, the whole nine yards. Okay, uh, verse number, um, let's see, 10. 14.10, Joshua 14.10. Okay, so he's talking. Caleb is talking to Joshua. They are going to divvy up the property. And if you read the earlier verses, Caleb comes to Joshua, and he's, he wants his piece of parcel here. They've been wandering for all these years because of the unbelief of the previous generation. The uh, people over the age of 20 have all died off one after another. They've watched this happen for 45 years. Caleb comes to Joshua and, re and, and reminds him, 
word for word of what Moses promised those two guys way back 40, more than 40 years ago. Think about that. They wandered in the wilderness watching all the unbelievers die off one after another, but he remembered word for word what God promised him and requoted it to Joshua. And that's what's happening in verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11, he says, or verse 10, we'll start there. Caleb says to Joshua, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45, what's that next word? Years. years. Not weeks, not months. Years. I've been in the Philippines 42 years. And he was talking about something that's even three years farther along than where I was in the Philippines when I first got there. 45 years. He said, I, you know, listen, I've been wandering 45 years of this. And now he says at the end of verse 10, Here am I this day, 85 years old. Praise the Lord. There's hope for all of us. <laughs> verse 11, As yet, meaning still, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war. Notice those last two words, for war. We're talking about spiritual strength. We're talking about getting there and staying there. Getting to a place of spiritual strength and staying there for the rest of your life. Getting there is half the battle. Staying there is the rest of your life. It's called consistency. Okay? And I found out when I went to the Philippines, I could no longer cruise on another man's revelation. There was no more book of the month club back then, tape of the month club. There was no more bookstore in every street corner, no conference I could go to. It was me and my Bible and the jungle. And I found out that if I don't know who I am in Christ, I'm not going to make it. And there have been a lot of people that have gone over to a place like that and they haven't made it. They've either been killed, died, or they went home beat, disgusted, and discouraged. Any of the above. I've seen it many, many times. Uh, you know, listen, we're still in the game. The reason we're still in the game is because of what we're talking about here tonight. Okay? Strength. He says, I was strong then, as I was strong then, 45 years ago. I'm still as strong now. How do we get to a place like this? where we can be as strong 20 years into the run, 25 years into the run, 30 years into the race we're running for Jesus without faltering or failing or quitting or giving up. How many would like to finish the race and hear Jesus say, well done, well done. I know I do. I'm sure your pastors do. Anybody that loves Jesus wants to hear, well done, good job. I'm proud of you. But that's not what many Christians are going to hear. And we're happy they're in heaven and we're happy they're children of God, and they'll be with Jesus forever in heaven. But their life never amounted to much. They ended up being a brother blend-in, or a pastor popular, or somebody that just acted like, thought like, lived like unbelievers. You can't tell the difference until they're in church on Sunday. That's about the only difference. But they sound like, look like, and live like everybody else. That's not the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people like Joshua and Caleb, the two out of 12. Remember there were 12 spies? and 10 came back with a bad report. They all saw the same thing. 12 guys went over, and all of those spies, the Bible says, were hand-picked leaders. 
They were not newbies. They were hand-picked from each tribe. Moses knew these guys. He picked each one from each tribe, hand-selected them to go over and do 40 days of intel, to go over and secretly do covert work to hide and find out what's going on, who's over there, look like what the cities look like, give, give, come on back and give us the military report, the intelligence report, and they did. And 10 gave a bad report of unbelief. Two gave the good report of faith, Joshua and Caleb. Two out of 12. And today, that's about right. The percentage of Christians, body of Christ in general, for every two that are on fire for the Lord and usable and meet for the master's use, there are 10 who God loves with all of his heart but can't use because their attitudes are not right, their level of faith is so low that there's nothing for God to work with, the devil just steamrolls steam them every time he, you know, anytime he wants. That's not the way we are to live our lives. Amen? We're supposed to be bait, uh, boat rockers and wave makers, shakers and movers for Jesus. When we get up in the morning, the devil should be running for cover. He should be, but in many cases, he actually sits down and has coffee with you in the, in the morning. <laughs> as a donut and a cup of coffee with you. Okay, what's happening? So, look with me, if you would, at the first chapter of Joshua. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. This is when Joshua was first put in charge. Okay, 14, chapter 14 deals with Joshua, after he's been in charge for a while, and now they're going to divvy up the land. But chapter 1 is when he is first being put in charge of the nation of Israel. Okay, Moses has died, all right? And now Joshua has been installed in his stead. So God is having a moment with him, uh, instructing him about how to conduct leadership, how to run the country, how to manage the people. This is chapter 1. So let's begin in verse 5. This is God talking to Joshua now. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Notice the, the admonition to be strong and courageous. For, this, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only... Verse 7, be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or left that you may prosper wherever you go. Okay, how many would like to prosper wherever they go? He's telling us how to do this. Then verse 8, this book of the law, which we now know to be the Bible, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. But he's not done. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? That's a rhetorical question. That means they already know the answer. You don't have to try to answer. They already know what it is. Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Now, that's what Jesus said was going on. Men's hearts will be failing them from fear. Here, he's telling this man, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed because the Lord is with you wherever you go. We're never alone here. I just feel alone. Well, you're never alone. Jesus said so. He said, I'll, with, I'll be with you all the way to the end of the age. Well, if he said that, then he is. We're never alone. He's always there with us. But 
we have to take the word of God and apply it so that it becomes real in our lives. It's not just a theory, it's actual reality. We actually live according to this. Okay, now look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? That is a command. Years ago, I, I was smart enough to realize I'm commanded to be strong. It's not a request, it's not a suggestion. Okay, I'm in the military. I'm a commissioned officer in the Philippine Army. My wife is also a commissioned officer. I hold the rank of Brigadier General, and she holds the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. And my title is International Chaplain. Her title is Chaplain Officer. And so we get to meet with and go on the military bases and talk to the soldiers and encourage them to find Jesus many times before they're going to go out on military operations. And I tell them, you may be dead tomorrow. So you better make sure you're ready to meet Jesus. And since I'm the general and you're not, get saved. <laughs> get saved, okay? My point is this. When the commanding officer gives an order, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. He's not a suggesting officer. He's a commanding officer. Amen? And they know that when I tell them what to do, they do what I tell them to do. They may not like it. They may not agree with it. I don't care. I'm telling you what you ought to be doing because I am a higher rank than you are. Well, Jesus is the commander-in-chief of this army. And we, when we got saved, and we'll read the verse in a minute or two, we became soldiers in the army of the Lord. How many understand you're in the military? You may not think of yourself this way, but that's how God sees you. This is a military manual. The Bible is a military manual talking about warfare, that's what Joshua talked about, you know, this day. I want to be a strong for war, for war. He knew why he needed to be strong. It's because of the war that we're engaged in. But you talk to many Christians, they stare at you like you just got off the bus from Mars. They don't know what you're talking about. They really don't. They're good people, but they just don't have a clue. And the devil knows that. And so he runs roughshod over their life whenever he wants to, and they don't know how to stop it and just throw him off their porch and get on with the business of God, okay? So part of what I'm doing in the latter stages of my race that I'm running is to try and impart this to the, to the younger people behind me that are coming up so that they don't repeat the same mistakes that so many of us have. So that even if we have made mistakes, we can recover our lost time and be as sharp for Jesus at the end of the game than we were at the beginning. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. That's what I want to be. I want to hear Jesus say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just, well, <laughs> happened to you. Where'd you disappear to? Well, Lord, it was just so difficult. Well, you know what? He's, here's what he's going to tell you. Well, listen, I gave you my name, which is above every name. I gave you the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity took up residence inside of your heart. I gave you nine gifts of the Spirit whenever you needed to have them manifest. I gave you angelic escort. They're always with you. I gave you the word which is above everything, name above every name, the word of God which is the sharper than any two. I gave you everything you needed to succeed. So don't tell me that it was so difficult for you that you couldn't succeed. Because I just told you in Joshua, this is what you're going to do to be prosperous and successful. So if you do what he said to do, you'll be prosperous and successful. Or otherwise, God's a liar, and we know he isn't. Amen. Amen. Well, let's give him a hand. Amen, because he's worthy. Amen. In fact, if you read down to the end of the chapter, verse 18 of chapter 1, he says it a fourth time. 
Only be strong and very courageous. My point is this. If God says anything four times in one chapter, he thinks it's important. And we'd be smart to realize that. So if he's talking about being strong four times and then puts it in command form, it's a priority. You know, on my desk in, the, in Tucson, I have a plaque on my desk, which I read, I look at frequently. It says, the top priority is to keep top priority, top priority. That's top priority. To find it and keep it top priority. The top priority in my life is to keep the top priority, top priority. And this is top priority. If you're not strong spiritually, you're going to get railroaded, run over, crushed by the devil because he has no mercy. Have you found out? He hates you. He hates me. He hates all of us. And he'll steal and kill and destroy any time we give him an opening. My point to you is this. When you're strong in the Lord, you don't give him any opportunity and you don't hand him free ammunition to use. Because if you hand him free ammo, he's going to use it. Okay? So I don't want to see that happen to you any more than I'd like to see this happen to me. I want to run my race in a way where I'm pleasing to the Lord and terrifying to the devil. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord. And that's why churches like this are here. Amen? To preach the uncompromised word of God. Amen? Not some watered-down, melbatose, milksop message that just pleases a bunch of double-minded, triple-minded people anyway. Listen, if you're afraid of offending people, you're in the wrong business. You're going to offend a bunch of people. Jesus offended a bunch of people. They crucified him because of his message. And he said, the servant's not above his master. If they persecuted me, honey, they'll persecute you. Amen. I tell my pastors, hey, if the devil's not shooting at you, something's wrong. If you haven't been hit and wounded a few times along the way, something's wrong here. We'll bleed with you, but don't quit. Don't give up, because if you quit, God's got nothing to work with. But if you fall, make sure you fall forward. Make sure you learn from the mistakes. You get up, the blood of Jesus covers you, he forgives you, move on, and don't look back. That's right, that's how you keep going. We're all works in progress, amen? We're all works in progress. Nobody's perfect except Jesus. Amen. Everybody. Paul had issues. He writes about it in Romans. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I know I'm doing, I shouldn't be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul had issues. Everybody has issues. But praise God, we've got the blood of Jesus on a mercy seat. Thank God it's a mercy seat, not a judgment seat. His mercy is new every morning. Thank God in heaven for that. Hallelujah to Jesus. All right. Look with me at uh, Joshua 17. Let's jump back to the 17th chapter in the first verse. All right, Joshua 17. The, the middle chapters in the book of Joshua are rather slow reading. It's just about a bunch of people. You know, the, the tribe of Benjamin got this piece of property. The tribe of Dan got this piece of property. The tribe of Manasseh got this. It's kind of slow reading. But in the middle of all that, there's this gem right here. Joshua 17.1. First verse of the 17th chapter. Listen to this. It says, There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war, therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan, two prime pieces of real estate, were given to this man for one reason, according to what we read here. 
He was a man of war. Because he was a man of war. Listen, because he was something, he got something. Amen. You got to write that down and don't forget. Because you, if you are something, you're going to get something. Promise from God. If you are something, you're going to get something. And this, this man, Machir here, because he was a man of war, because his attitude was right, it's like Caleb. Because he was something, he got something. And that's what God's waiting for. He wants us to position ourselves, by the help of grace of God, of course, to so be on fire for the Lord and so have our sword so sharp and our shield so up that nothing the devil can do to penetrate will successfully neutralize us and make us of none effect for the kingdom of God. In, in, in essence, we end up as a body in a chair somewhere, but we're doing nothing for the Lord. We're just in church. We're just church people. We're just bodies in chairs or pews. I want to make a difference with my life because you don't get to go around and do it again. This is it. The Bible says, you know, we're appointed, to, uh, we're appointed unto death once and then comes judgment. It doesn't say you get a chance to go back around and try again to fix the mistakes you did the first time through. This is it. Amen? And have you discovered time moves on? And the older you get, it seems to move on a lot faster. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll spend the rest of our time here in this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The, the underlying point in this message tonight is to find the way to so insulate yourself that you're not going to fall away and falter. You're not going to be an empty seat where you used to sit on fire for the Lord and something happened to you, some tragedy, some whatever, some unexplained difficulty. You got mad at God. The devil sat on your shoulder and lied to you about it and you got mad and left the church and threw your Bible away and went back to the bar or whatever. I see it all the time. I've been around long enough to see it. When you go to churches where we have relationship over extended periods of time, you'll watch people on the front row go from the front row to the fourth row to the seventh row to the back row over the course of 10 or 15 years. Same people. And I'll ask the pastor because, you know, they used to be, you know what it is, the front row people with Rapture Airlines T-shirt, <laughs> you know, running around, you know, Bibles under each arm, you know, a little antenna to catch the vibes of the Holy Ghost and all that. Boom. <laughs> You know, amening everything, the front row people, the ones that, you know, right at the door before the church opens and so forth. Yeah. But, you know, if you're not careful, that whole mentality can get buried in a sea of mediocrity and compromise because we're surrounded by it. Mediocrity and compromise inside the body of Christ. Outside, you can expect people to be sinners because they're sinners. But you see this inside the church. People not sold out. They're saved, yeah, probably. You never know, it's between them and God, but you assume they are. But they're not doing anything. They're not growing. They're not, they're not sharpening their sword. They're not moving forward. They're not advancing under fire. I wrote a book called Advancing Under Fire, as a matter of fact. But the point is, here, Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is his protege, his son in the faith. He's writing him and giving him instructions how to handle the churches that he's now been put in charge of. So he says to Timothy in the second epistle, Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, talking to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, the strength we need is because of the grace of the Lord. How many know this is true? Yes. We are, apart from Jesus, we are nothing. Nobody going anywhere. We're nothing without him. The minute we think we're something special, God's going to take us and just 
push us aside and find somebody else to fill the void that we created for ourselves because of our attitude. Hey, check me out. You know, in the Philippines, we have um, a staff of about 13 people, paid staff in the Philippines. We have a compound. We have walls and gates and barbed wire along the top, and we have a gate guard. Now, the gate guard is just the, the man that is the one usually they give to us is a man usually, or sometimes it's a lady, but either or, they're very uneducated people. They may have finished grade school. They may have finished high school. You never know for sure, but for sure, they're not university graduates. But they are in charge of the gate. And in the Philippines, the man or woman in charge of the gate is a very key person. Because over there, you know, you've got communist rebels, Muslim rebels, kidnappers. They love to take Americans like us and kidnap us for money and ransom. We are targets. Okay, when I get up in the morning, I wear my firearm. You know, the ladies put on their lipstick, I put on my gun. Okay, I don't feel dressed if I'm not armed. That's the environment we live in. And the gate guard is there. So every so often when I have staff meetings, not every time, but every so often I feel compelled to remind everybody on the staff, listen, don't you dare look at someone else on this staff and look down at them for any reason as if you, for some reason, are superior to them. That's not happening here under my watch because everybody needs everybody else. And if everybody does what they're assigned to do, we all get the same reward. I may go do the preaching, the interpreter may do the interpreting, and she's a very intelligent girl and she's gone to university and that's fine and we need her, but we need you people. And I point to the gate guard. I say, you see this person? Don't you think for one second that they're any less important than you? Because on the day of rewards, they get the same reward that I get, that any of these people get, because we need everybody else. Amen? Amen. It's like David in, in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. You know, when he threw the stone, we all know he threw the stone and knocked out the giant. But there's two people there that you don't know. You don't know their names. They're just nameless nobodies that they did their job because they did their job. David was able to do his. It's the sheep keeper and the supply keeper. Go back and read chapter 20. The Bible says when David went to the front lines, he left the sheep with a sheep keeper. And when he got to the front lines, he left the supplies with a supply keeper and then went to the front to talk to his brothers. And when he was there listening to them talk, the giant showed up for challenge number 81. He had done this 40 days, twice a day. David wasn't there to hear any of it. But he got there with cheese to give it to his brothers. you know. And while he's listening to them talk about what's going on, which was basically nothing because they're all hiding from the giant. Goliath shows up for challenge number 81. And David hears it for the first time. And the kid goes ballistic. He said, Who, who's this? How long has this been going on? And one of the brothers, uh, <coughs> 40 days. <laughs> what? 40 days? Yeah, as a matter of fact, he comes twice a day. Comes in the morning, comes in the evening, and does what he's doing here. Challenges everybody, challenge, challenges King Saul. And David says, are you kidding me? Nobody's gone down to take this guy out. And they said, hey, excuse me, borrow my field glasses. Take a good look at this guy. You see that bush next to him? That's not a bush. That's a full-grown tree. <laughs> the man was anywhere from 9 and a half to 11 feet tall. Huge, huge man. And a, he had an armor bear in front of him, carrying his armor. His armor weighed 125 pounds. And David says, I don't care. I've got a covenant with God. He doesn't have a covenant with God. We've got a covenant with God. If no one else will go down there, I'll take him out and picked up some stones and went down there and did it. But my point is, if he had not 
been a, well, let me back up and say it a different way. On the day of rewards, when we're all standing there and David is called up to get rewards for throwing the stone and saving the nation, Jesus will say, hold on. Wait a minute, David. Where's the supply keeper? Hand goes up somewhere out there. There you go. Come on up here. The sheep keeper, where are you? Ah, there you are. Come on. You come up too. Sheep keeper, stand to the right. Supply keeper, stand to the left. You three get the same reward for throwing the stone and killing the giant and saving the nation. Someone might say, well, the sheep keeper didn't do that. He, he didn't even go to the front. But he did his job. He did his job and made it possible for David to go to the front lines. And then he unloaded the supplies to the supply keeper, which made it possible for David to go to the front front lines and hear the challenge and answer and save the nation. Those three guys. And you don't know who the supply keeper is and you don't know who this, uh, the sheep keeper is, but on the day of rewards in heaven, we'll find out who they are. See, You don't need to impress people to impress God. Just do what you're told to do. Amen. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 3. You, therefore, talking to Timothy, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Learn how to handle the difficulties without caving in. Then, verse 4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes in athletics, he's, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. And then verse 7 says, consider what I'm saying. Let's consider that. Let's consider that for a minute. First of all, entanglements. What are those things? Okay, I come from a military and a corporate background, and I need definition for terms. Don't just tell me something. I want to know what you're talking about. And if I don't know, I, I will ask questions. I was taught to do this before I even knew Jesus. If you don't know what you're talking about, get definition for terms before you con continue with your discussion and your conversation, etc. So when the Bible commands me to be strong, I went to the Lord, I said, okay, I want you to define for me what strength is because I'm not standing before your judgment on, on, on strength or my idea of what strength is. I'm going to stand before him. So if he's commanding me to be strong, then I need to know what he thinks strength is. Because he, it's his criteria that I'll be judged by. So he said to me, he said, well, strength can be defined, among other things. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. So joyful people are strong. Amen? I can tell you're overwhelmed with joy. <laughs> joyful people are strong. Amen. Amen? Aren't you joy? You're on your way to heaven. Yes. Amen? Let's, let's inform our faces from time to time <laughs> so that we all know that you know you're on your way to heaven. Okay, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right. But there is something else. I was jogging along, and I heard the Lord say to me, and this was, this was in the Philippines way back in 1984. I can tell you where I was when he told it to me. We were on junk, jog, jogging along there. My wife and I had just been married for a short time. I went out for an afternoon jog, and I'm going along, and I'm thinking about this stuff. And the Holy Spirit said, I'll give you another definition for spiritual strength. So I'm jogging along, and he says, strength can be defined as consistency of action. Now, I'd never heard that before. Consistency of action. Hmm. So when I went home, I wrote that down. And I went to the Bible to check it out to see if it lines up with Scripture. Because not everything you hear, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's not from God. How many of you know that? So always compare what the prophet said, or the man of God said, or what the voice in your head said, to what the Bible says. All right, so I did. 
And I found out that it, it's consistent with Scripture. There were many people doing many great things for God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, people in different time periods, different levels of education, male or female, it didn't matter. The common thread, the common denominator here was they were consistent in serving the Lord. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They made plenty of mistakes, all of them. David's a classic example. The man after God's own heart, guilty of adultery and murdering the husband of the woman he had adultery with, that's pretty low. But he still called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he had enough sense to know that when he's, ask, he's asking God to forgive him and he's genuinely repentant for the sin, God forgives and moves on. And he, he understood this. He was generations ahead of his time. Now that's New Testament, but he was in the old. Anyway, the point being, you and I have to understand that uh, you know, when we decide to follow Jesus, you know, we need to be consistent and the way we are consistent is to be consistent with our actions. That's what Joshua said. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. There's the consistency. Day and night. Not once a week on Sunday mornings. Sunday morning church now is necessary, but it's not going to carry the day. You have to be strong with the Lord every single day. In the world in which we live now, if you're just thinking that a one 45-minute message on Sunday morning is enough to carry the day in your life, you're naive and you're going to get steamrolled by Satan. Okay, There's just too many opportunities out there to, to cave to the fear that's all around us anymore. Okay, We need to be stronger than that. That doesn't come by just a nice message once in a while or once a week or once every Christmas. We need to be on guard every single day. Well, I'm so busy. Well, if you're too busy for what we're talking about, you need to rearrange your priorities because this is priority. The top priority is to keep the top priority top priority. So he gave me a list. I said, okay, because I went to, I read this verse and, and he's talking about entanglements. Don't be entangled. I said, okay, I want a definition here. What is an entanglement? You tell me not to be entangled with the affairs of this life. Okay, fine. What's an entanglement? Tell me, define it for me. And he said, an entanglement is anything that prevents you from fulfilling your spiritual priorities every day. It's something that prevents you, anything that prevents you from fulfilling your spiritual priorities every day. Not every week, every day. There's the consistency part again. So I said to the Lord, I said, what do you mean, priorities? What, pri I, what, what priorities are you talking about? He said, well, I'll give you a list of seven of them. So he gave me a list. And I've endeavored to follow this since from then until now and until Jesus comes. Seven priorities, what I call priorities of life. That's what he called them. Seven priorities of life. And they are given in descending order of importance, meaning one is more important than two, which is more important than three, on down to number seven. They're all important, but in relation to each other, one is one, then two, then three, then four, down to number seven. Okay, the first is worship. Worshiping the Lord, that's number one. Number two is praise. Number two is praise, praising the Lord. Number three is prayer. You know, worship and praise is a form of prayer, but there are other prayers. There's the prayer of opportunity, the prayer of agreement, the prayer of faith. You know, there's other ones out there. Okay, so prayer is number three. Number four is confession. Confessing the word, speaking it out your mouth. Number five is meditation, to think about, to dream about, to mull over the word and the statements that you're looking at, meditation. Number six is study and reading, not just reading. You know, reading the Bible through a year might impress you, but it doesn't impress the devil. 
You know, I read the Bible through once a year. Well, great, but do you, have you retained any information from the reading of the Bible through in a year and all that? So study and reading, they go together. And then number seven is sharing, what we commonly call witnessing. Witnessing or sharing your faith. I want you to notice, witnessing is number seven. The reason, and and here, here's the seven groups, the seven listings in three groups. Group one is one, two, and three. Group one is you establishing relationship with God. You have to know his voice. You have to be close to him. You have to understand how he operates. You have to think like God. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. That all comes through worship, praise, and prayer. Talking to, fellowshipping with the Lord in your prayer closet. Okay, getting to know his voice. You know, when I call Ethel on the phone, if I'm on the road somewhere and I call home and she picks up the phone, I don't say, hey, this is Mike, your husband. <laughs> she knows my voice because we've been talking for so long together. She knows me. Amen? She knows. You know, when God talks, I know his voice. How many of you know the devil will try to camouflage his voice, to make it sound like God, to confuse us. Hmm? So the more you spend time with God listening to him talk and the way he talks and the way he maneuvers and thinks, you become accustomed to it. That's done through worship, praise, and prayer. Worship is recognizing God for who he is. Praise recognizes God for what he does. That's why worship is more important than praise because first and foremost, we worship God for who he is. He's God and we're not. He's the creator and we're not. Okay, and we praise him for what he does in response to our faith, which he gives us anyway. We are what we are by the grace of God. That's group one, the top three. Then group two is four, five, and six. Four, five, and six is we accumulating knowledge. knowledge wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That's group two. That's priorities four, five, and six. That's confession, meditation, study, and reading. That's where you acquire information that you use to stand your ground in faith, okay? The Bible says my people perish for a lack of knowledge, okay? So we need to know something. You can't, you, you can't share something you don't know. And then number seven, group three is the num, uh, number seven, sharing. That's group three. That's reach, outreach, okay? But you gotta spend time with God and spend time in the word, and then you've got something to share. Now you've got something to share. You preach out of the overflow of your heart, okay? Witnessing is easy. It's not a chore. You're just so full of the word you can't contain it. That's sharing. When you spent time with God, when you spent time studying the word like that, every single day. You don't have to spend hours and hours doing this. And the time and when you do it, that's between you and the Lord. Some people are night people. Some people are morning people. Some people are noon people. What the point is, find the time that works for you. Amen? And start doing this. Because as I said at the beginning of this message, if you don't, things are not going to get better until Jesus comes back. They're going to continue to spiral down the toilet into more and more darkness and evil and perverseness. That's the world in which we live. Amen. People talk about, I just wish it was like it was before. It's never going to be like it was before. Never. We have entered uncharted territory. Amen. So this is what I came to share with you. I have been at this now for 42 years. I'm not a perfect person, but I have learned enough to stay alive in a place where you better know some things or you won't. Amen. 
We've had <laughs> witch doctors try to disrupt our meetings. We've had uh, demon-possessed people come along. We've had Muslim imams try to jump up on the stage and knife me in the middle of my message. How rude. <laughs> I guess they just didn't like me. What do you think? Hmm. Okay, I mean, I'm, you know, we've got stories to tell. The point is, hey, we're still here. We're still here. So I've learned enough to tell you that if God can do this for me, he can do it for you because he's no respecter of persons. Amen? Amen? So you're sitting there thinking, well, God can't use me. He wants to use everybody. Everybody is usable. Just get yourself in a position where he wants to. And the last verse is 2 Chronicles 16, 9. It says, the Lord, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. That simply means back and forth across the whole world, searching, looking for people to show himself strong to. By the fact that he has to search for them means they're not readily found everywhere. He's got to find them. I would like to think that when he crosses my path, he thinks to himself, you know, here's somebody I can work with. I can work with him. And I would like to think that when he crosses paths with you, he says the same things. Here's somebody I can work with. Amen. Unfortunately, most of the time, he has to pass over people because they're not prepared to be used. Okay? Because when you're used, you're going to become a big target for the devil. The more you're anointed, the bigger the target gets on your back. The more you'll get shot at, wounded, you will bleed. But when you're a church like this, people will bleed with you. We won't leave you behind. No, leave no man behind. Jesus, he's the one that coined it. Yeah, I'll leave nobody behind. Amen?